Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast and our analysis and discussion and review of the 2019 horror film Swallow. Uh, this is, uh, if you're new to our podcast, uh, we will be spoiling the film. This will be a spoiler-filled discussion. Uh, we will be analyzing Swallow through the lens of philosophy as well as uh, the basic sort of film techniques of horror films. Uh, we'll be talking about what makes this a horror film. We'll be talking about the compulsion and psychosis that's at the heart of this film's conflict. And uh, get ready, guys. We're going to be talking about feminism because I think this film might have something to say about feminism. Oh, my God. It's shocking. It's surprising. It's, yeah, just a little bit. So if you haven't seen the film, you should probably take a look at it before... Uh, listening to our podcast, um, or if you just don't care about being spoiled, then Swallow is a 2019 film directed by Carlo Mirabella Davis and starring Haley Bennett, Austin Stowell, and Dennis O'Hare. It follows a newly pregnant woman afflicted with pica, which is a relatively rare psychological disorder that causes its victims to eat non-nutritive substances. So the film depicts Hunter, the protagonist, eating a marble, a thumbtack, jacks, soil, uh, a battery, and uh, other dangerous substances, while her husband, Richie, seeks to maintain an ever-tightening hold on her with the help of his asshole upper-class family. Um, let's get a couple things out of the way. The film's actually relatively good about its uh, factual accuracies as it relates to pica, this this uh, uh, disorder um, as characterized by the DSM um, of eating non-nutritive substances. It often takes place. It often uh, finds footing in in um, pregnant women. Um, it often has a it, it has associations with um, iron deficiency and whatnot. So in some cases there is a biological or physiological cause. Although this film does uh, make it relatively clear that the cause of her pica is um, is a form of psychosis that it's that it's psychological rather than uh, physiological. Um, but as I said, the heart of this movie is compulsion. So I am with my friends Noah and Ben and Shayra, and we are they're gonna help me analyze this film. And I want to start off with sort of an opening question. And what compulsion, either healthy or unhealthy, do you feel comfortable sharing? Uh, and, and how does your relationship with your compulsion help you relate to the protagonist? Who wants to go first with this, with, with this opening question here? I will go and say, uh, cocaine, just lots <laughs> of cocaine. No, uh, yeah, I, for me, I don't, so like, I don't have like a specific compulsion per se. However, I, I like, for me, I, I think I have something like a tendency to focus all of my energies in one specific direction for let's say extended periods of time. So like I'll go through periods where I like sort of just decide to focus all my energies on like working out, right? Which is actually the phase I'm in now. I know I, I don't look like I work out, but I do. 
Uh, at the beginning of quarantine, however, I had like all my focus and all of my energies into the opposite, which was like craft beer, like that sort of vibe and drinking and eating and foodie stuff. And then I went through this phase where the only thing that really mattered to me was like growing my career rapidly, right? So I, I think for me, um, if there is any similarity to Hunter, and this is kind of a, a stretch, at least in my case, I think it's maybe the propensity to fixate, um, and I would argue maybe to a, a somewhat unhealthy degree at times. Like, luckily for me, my fixation is not where, you know, I put batteries down my throat or jacks or something like that. I mean, I, I think what's really at the the heart of Hunter's fixation seems to be a kind of catharsis, right? It's a it's a sort of release, and I think we'll get into some of the aspects of control and all of that stuff later, but I, I think it's very deeply connected to the broader issue of control in the film, and so I, I guess for me, I would empathize solely on maybe the subject of fixation, like I sort of know what that's like, Although the degree, I think, to which Hunter is fixated is much more profound and her reasons for doing so, I think, much more serious than any of mine. And probably her need for catharsis, you know, being centered around a disorder that's like just infinitely more dangerous than I think some of mine. So I, I, I was doing my best to think of how I can stretch one of my issues into hers. And I think that's the best I got. I've actually had her affliction, <laughs> um, but not to the level she did but exactly how it started. Um, when she got pregnant and she started with ice, I, I only went that far. I think it's it's considered a form of pica, but it's uh, got another word, it's like pagophagia or something. I can't remember. I don't know how to pronounce all these terms. But um, my entire pregnancy, you know, they would say women have these weird cravings. I just wanted to crunch on ice the entire time. And people were like, oh, you might be anemic. And they would try to control like, getting iron into my my diet and it did not help i just wanted to crunch ice so much um my favorite ice by the way for for people with this affliction which i still have now not as bad as when i was pregnant but i still have this crunching ice uh i almost gonna call it a fetish because it does make you feel really good um is the sonic ice um the shaved, the, the kind that shaved the little cylindrical, little crushed ice things. And so when I'm wa when I watched her crunch that ice, and she was kind of smirking to herself, I'm like, I know that feeling. This is amazing. This movie is going to be fantastic. So um, I never put any other objects in, in my mouth like she did, though. Um, it stopped at ice. It did not continue past that. Um, but I understand the way they were depicting how she reacts to it, it's the same kind of feeling, like you just, feels good. Um, I've tried doing all the iron you need because it might be anemia, it's not linked to that. I just like to crunch ice, um, so. <laughs> I, I don't know, I felt like, I, I felt very seen, just in that scene, especially with all the, the parents watching. By the way, the guy who plays the dad, uh, the, the father figure over the husband, he, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he was back in the show, like, in the early 90s called Sledgehammer. And he played this, like, gun-toting, like, hardcore conservative sexist jerk face. And so when he played this, you know, asshole, you know, patriarchy guy, I'm like, this is, the, he's Sledgehammer. This is the perfect guy to play this character. So um, I, I kind of, I was excited to see that guy back on the scene. I don't know if he's been in other stuff, but I recognize him from Just, just, just being a dick being a dick in every show he's in. <laughs> yeah. He's just a dick. He plays a great asshole. It's wonderful. <laughs> so David, 
David Rash has a uh, long and storied career uh, up to and including Succession and uh, Veep, Imposter, etc. Okay. Ben, do so you want to talk about Compulsion? Yeah, yeah, no, Succession is actually really good. So I'd just like to call that out really quick. If you're talking about the uh, the HBO series, that's actually, I'll go ahead and plug that really quick and just say, yeah, definitely go check that out. Um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, I have trouble with this a little bit because I want to make a distinction uh, between compulsion and something more like um, like addiction. I don't know, because like with, with compulsions, when, whenever you t- stereotypically think about that in terms of the psychological component, it, it's not supposed to be something that someone does, I think, because it, it like it feels good in the same way like an addiction might be. I don't know. It's, it's more like an uncontrollable urge that, yes, you can't stop despite trying to, much like an addiction, except it's there's there's no component that makes you have i don't know supposedly no component that makes you feel like that same sort of like rush i don't know like it, it sounds a little bit different like the way you guys are describing it but um i think my example would fall a little more along those like the lines that i'm thinking of uh especially back in college and for a long time i had this persistent issue not just to kind of like you know, pull on this and do this thing, but actually pull out hairs. And I think that the name for that is trichotillomania. Um, so there actually is a name for it. And I've never had, had like a diagnosis or anything. What's that? I was going to say, it's creep. You're oh, literally, it's in, yeah, well, it's, it's, it's creep. the same. Yeah, right. I think we might actually talk about yeah. it during that discussion too. But it's like, you know, you, you sit there and you just kind of like find the uneven hairs and you pull those out and you just keep going and going until you get like big patches and shit. Um, so yeah, it's more like a nervous compulsion that if you don't think about actively stopping, um, you'll end up pulling out like half your half your beard. Um, so I think that's that's definitely the one that I'm going to use in this example. But there was no there's no like pleasurable component to it. It's more just like a nervous tick. Yeah, I'm going to go straight addiction, though. <laughs> like, <laughs> everything that you're saying is absolutely right. Like we should we should make that that distinction scientifically, except that uh, when I wrote this question, I was specifically jonesing for a cigarette. And um, <laughs> I, I yeah, like. I have not smoked. I think it's the only way I've gotten over. The only way I've I've done this is I've not smoked for two months and 18 days. And the only way I've gotten there is by saying that I'll smoke tomorrow. Um, By saying by like I tried to quit smoking in the past. Um, I tried to like say, okay, I'm done with smoking forever. And that's just too much. Like, I can't, I can't do that. I can't say I'm done with smoking forever. So I've just said that I have run out of cigarettes and I'm just not going to get them until maybe tomorrow if I get around to it. It's very possible that by the time this video is edited and launched, I am watching this video while smoking a cigarette. And it's very possible that I'm not. Like, that's it. Both of those things are are, are possibly true. Uh, but it's, and in that sense, like, so I, as we talked about in our discussion of Raw, um, th- people eating non-food things makes me gag, makes me throw up and in fact um i'm just gonna edit in the uh the group text that we have and you'll see i i gagged at least five times during this film um and uh and noted to my my colleagues that uh that noah's film choice had made me gag um and it was uh that it was unpleasant and and stop and don't ever make me do this again
were you gagging at just the stuff where she was eating the food or were you gagging at other elements like when she was bleeding out of her uh right into the bathroom and digging through her own feces bloody feces for the objects that she wanted to collect after she uh uh let it go through her system as right. a trophy for passing through her system i guess on yeah. her like were those parts making you gag too, or was it just the eating part? Hey, Jim's just like, no, I, I I ate like good food during the part where she digs <laughs> it out of her butthole. That was like my favorite part. No, no, that was yeah. No, right, <laughs> you were munching on a steak during that time. Uh, no, I. It was only during the the stuff where she was like sticking a battery in her mouth, and like even then she would like put it in her, and I'd be like, okay, all right, this is gonna be okay, and then she would swallow it, and I'd go. Ugh. Okay. That's not this. I was like, I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be fine. I'm gonna be. I'm not fine. Yeah. And then I would send the uh, the Deadpool vomit emoji to you all. But yeah, like, so it take it. I mean, the point of all of this is that it for me to meet this film in a place where I could sort of get over my visceral reaction to it. Um, I had to start, I had to say, wait a second, is there a compulsion? Isn't there, is there a way that we can, that, that there's, because as Roger Ebert famously said, films are empathy machines. And if you're not able to be empathetic with the characters or, or with the situations at all, then you're not doing your job as an audience member. If you're not at least trying to, uh, be empathetic with the the characters and whatnot. Then uh, you are you're not doing your job as an audience member. So I was trying to do my job as an audience member by relating uh, her compulsions to my own compulsions and 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 relating the idea of like, hey, maybe not eat batteries to people saying, hey, maybe not smoke because fuck you, um, like that was uh, that, that, and so that's I I think it's easy to judge this character and it's easy to sort of dismiss her because her her disorder is so extraordinary but at the same time we do have this we all have sort of com similar compulsions or at least ways in which we can we can kind of relate to uh what what the character is going through so w let's talk about genre let's talk about horror as a genre and why this is a horror film and what to what other horror films might swallow be positively compared so it definitely has horror film ele elements right it, it uh it utilizes tension and i think to a certain extent fears of isolation it's even some body horror elements in swallow um so I, I would classify it as a kind of horror film. I, I think that Swallow is similar to a couple films, one that we've done and one that we haven't, but we're going to, I think. Um, the first and most obvious film that it connects to, one that we've done, is the French horror film Raw, um, which to me is one of my favorite horror films ever. Um, it's similar not only in the sense that both movies are about a kind of consumption to a large degree, or like what goes in the mouth, as it were, but more importantly in the sense that they're both about young female protagonists in the process of becoming. I, I think the becoming is a bit different in both movies, but they're both, they're, they're both transformative sorts of films. So like in Raw, we have the main character, Justine, who's coming to grips with 
I mean, in that film, her, you know, spoiler alert, her desire to eat human flesh with her own sexuality, there's a lot going on there. She's essentially blossoming into this thing that I don't think she understands, and we go into this in our, in our podcast on Raw. And in Swallow, I would argue that Hunter has to kind of unbecome before she can become, right? She has to sort of strip off something before she can self-actualize. Like, her transformation is such that she has to go uh, backwards, I think, a little bit before she can go forwards. And so, you know, for example, we see this through her need to confront her rapist father. We see this through her need to undo her pregnancy. We see this through her need to, you know, sort of discard her lavish lifestyle with her husband and her family, uh, or her in-laws, I should say, for, like, a kind of true becoming, a self-actualization. So I think for Hunter her undoing of a particular set of things is in essence a large part of her transformation. It's, it's a large part of getting control back. And uh, I think another movie that this reminded me of, one that we haven't covered yet, um, is the 2020 remake of The Invisible Man. And I won't spoil the movie because we haven't covered it yet, but I'll say that there's a lot of similarities when it comes to the idea of women taking back kind of a modicum of control from let's say, what the film would offer us as a patriarchal and a male-dominant apparatus. There's a, a kind of Me Too pushback, I think, in both of these films that, uh, you know, be, it'll be sure to enrage much of the YouTube commenters in our videos. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Oddly enough, I think most similarly, this film is connected not to another film, but to a short story, which is uh, Charlotte Gilman's The Yellow Wallpaper. Um, I, th I think both this movie and that short story detail the deterioration of a woman's mental health, uh, and 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 I think for similar reasons. Like in both of these stories, we have the we have a pregnancy, uh, we have men who disregard the complexities of their spouse and sort of see them as objects. But um, in both Swallow and in the Yellow Wallpaper. Um, you know, the the women in those stories are both, I mean, there's so many connections. They're made not to work, for example, in both of the stories. Uh, both of the women in the stories uh, fixate on things. So in the yellow wallpaper, uh, the woman fix the wife fixates on a, a hideous, nasty yellow wallpaper. And obviously in Swallow, Hunter fixates on like objects. So I, but I think most importantly, both of these stories have women who just at the end of the day, like, want to be good wives and purvey the image that they're happy, that their life is happy and satisfied. I mean, there's kind of a, but, but they're really not, right? Like, there's this sense of conformity, I think, in both stories, in both The Yellow Wallpaper and in Swallow. I mean, th there's there's a lot of connections. I mean, there's other movies that we could go on and on. What, uh, one of the uh, Bergman films we did, um, shit, Through Glass Darkly had some things with it uh, that, that I could connect. But I, I think the biggest connection comes through with the yellow wallpaper to me. I mean, I consider Swallow to be sort of like 2020's yellow wallpaper. Yeah, like those those archetypes and those essentially those attributes that you're pulling out of that are exactly what I was looking for when I was thinking about this question. And I think, honestly, the movie that really hits it for me is Rosemary's Baby. Like, I, I see a lot of overlap there. Um, not just because of like the obvious uh, parts, like obviously it's a female main character who's going through a pregnancy, but um, because the overarching theme is about control and about like a husband who is kind of like taking the liberties and freedom away from his wife, um, making her kind of do what he wants to do. There's like this 
circle of people around him who also kind of like chip in on this control and she just is in this situation where she has no ability to self-actualize she adjusts to that by doing something that everything everyone is telling her is like absolutely crazy and they try to get her extra help and like they try to you know except i think in rosemary's baby we actually might see a less hopeful vision of the ending um and i know that's kind of like a messed up thing to say because whenever we think about the end of swallow it doesn't seem positive sort of right i mean like there you can think about it in a lot of different ways uh hunter is kind of i think disconnected from the things that were holding her back and like the things that were like taking control of her life like that seems like a positive to me whereas in rosemary's baby rosemary did not get that by the end of the movie um yeah jim i saw like a a reaction to that though it looks like maybe you might have interpreted the the ending uh, a little bit differently than i did but we might have to discuss that a little bit later are you interpreting as an uh, it's an upending, right? I, I I might have just misheard what you were saying. Uh, do you interpret the end of Swallow as an upending? Uh, define upending. Um, good fortune goes up. Oh, um, better I, than you know, in like a really yeah. dark sort of pyrrhic victory way. Yeah, like, and I think that's okay. probably the mark of a good horror film. It's like you know, there is kind of a resolution. But you're sort of like, eh, was it good? You know, I mean, it's like there's this weird question mark, like, yeah, it sort of is, but is she really better off? And, like, this horrible thing happens, but, you know, it's kind of interpreted in a, a good way, you know? Okay. Did you want to positively compare this to other horror films, Shayra? I'm going to positively uh, compare it to a film that I don't think is technically considered a horror, considering the time it came out, but it is very much similar. And I think ends in a much horrific way, a much more horrific way. So uh, I found out that some inspiration for this film came from uh, Jean Dielman. I don't know how to pronounce it. It's done by Chantelle Ackerman in 1972. Um, and it is also about a stay-at-home housewife. Um, but a lot of the um, sitting around and doing nothing and kind of staring off into space or knitting or doing something to try to pass the time is... Uh, put in in Jean Dielman, but uh, I'm going to spoil it for you guys. I'm so sorry if you really wanted to watch it, but it's three and a half hours of a woman in her three days doing mundane housewife stuff. She has, uh, her husband died six years before. She's still, oh. still taking care of her son. So she's doing things like washing the dishes all in real time, cooking meals all in real time, making coffee all in real time and it's just slow nobody says anything it's very mundane but it is also very beautiful and having a woman director and writer put together that film shows you from a woman's perspective what it is to be trapped in a prison like that and the length of the movie has been argued by people to be very boring but for me i think it is so imperative to show how that can be isolating how it can be detrimental to your psychological health and so here's the spoiler of the ending of jean dealman if you need to fast forward a couple of seconds sorry but at the end because she's been sleeping with people to make money to help take care of her son still uh she sleeps with this guy he does not do a very good job of doing it um in fact makes her struggle a little bit so when she's getting dressed at her uh vanity starts to try to take you know put her shirt back on she puts her skirt back on she gets all nice grabs a pair of scissors and stabs the guy in the throat 
which I think is definitely horror elements. It is not labeled a horror, but try to tell me that is not a horror film. She is, is stuck in a prison, goes completely mad over all of the mundane, horrible aspects of life and ends up taking another man's life. Um, so I saw so many elements that had to have been borrowed and that were were put in to swallow and what's really interesting is the director although it was a man he was telling the story of his grandma the actual real life story of his grandmother who had a compulsion of washing her hands a lot would use up lots of bars of soap every day and so they end up putting her in a mental health institution and she ends up getting electro electroshock therapy and eventually an unconsensual lobotomy um, and he thought that his grandmother was treated incorrectly for, for not being able to handle the life of a housewife. Um, and I, I'm pretty sure he saw Jean Dielman, which is, you know, a, an amazing feminist minimalist film, um, and added elements to that. But what he wanted to avoid doing was having the male gaze be accidentally input into Swallow. So he got a cinematographer and an art a production manager that were both women. Um, one of the, the art production uh, women, I believe she worked with Mad Men, so you might see some kind of furniture elements and other kinds of things that kind of remind you of Mad Men, uh, where things look kind of old school but still have like a modern kind of twist to it. Um, she was the one that, that came up with the idea of the red and blue gel paper being put up in the baby room to to add a kind of spooky element to it but also kind of give you the the vibe that things are going to go awry um but having that female perspective of that mundane lifestyle i think having them do the eye of it and doing the furniture and all that i think that was a really smart move on his part to help understand what that the horror of that life is it is a prison you are trapped and you are basically living to serve men. Uh, look nice, uh, make sure the food is delicious, uh, set the table so he has a happy life. Let's talk about um, feminism and how gender roles are portrayed in this film. I mean, we see Hunter doing these domestic duties. We see her even um, asserting her claim over those do uh, over domesticity. I can make my husband dinner, she says to uh, Lue. Um, but uh, she also finds no joy in domesticity whatsoever. Like, how is this... I, there's a very particular form of gender roles that's being at, that, that are at play here. And I think let's, let's try to unpack that and, and see what we can understand from the film about it. Yeah, I would want to initially say that, at least in this movie, so to, I mean, to piggyback off actually what Cheryl was saying, like, gender roles, at least in this film, are very obviously portrayed in this kind of, like, fucking 1950s style, the woman stays at home and takes care of the house, and the man develops his professional life, and that's the way things should be. I mean, it's a sort of, like, like, like the dominant set of marital mores here that we've had in the West for a very long time is what you see in this movie. Hunter personifies the idealized 1950s happy homemaker archetype where it's all about passivity and where like the true desires of the woman are masked and to a certain extent overshadowed by, I mean, one of the things and the most obvious thing is the professional development of the husband. So, I, I mean, like I would agree, Hunter finds absolutely no joy 
whatsoever in what she does. And if there's anything that's normative in this film, anything that should make us ask ask ourselves as viewers, what should we do when this occurs? I mean, what should we do when traditional gender roles and social mores produce so vastly negative a consequence? Um, I, I mean, I, I, I guess I would say that's what the film sort of, if there's anything normative in the movie, that's what it prompts, that question. And I, I mean, I would even argue that what Shara was talking about, like this sort of shit happens today. It's no different. Like it has disastrous effects. I mean, to give you, to give you a, 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 personal, a personal example, and I think I, I mentioned this previously in one of our, our earlier podcasts that um, like maybe a year and a half ago, I had this like really daunting responsibility of cleaning out and selling my grandfather's home, right? And so he built a home with my grandmother and he lived in this fucking house for 60 years. 60 years, dude. That is a long time to live in a house. And, you know, my grandfather and my grandmother got divorced in the 80s, right? My grandfather remarried. Okay, so I'm cleaning out his house, right? He has a little bit of Alzheimer's. He, he, I, I, the unfortunate responsibility of putting him into a home and I'm cleaning out his house. And while I'm cleaning out this house that like hasn't been cleaned out in 60 years, it's just got history everywhere I look. Um, one of the things I find is like notes from my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, uh, his first wife to her kids. So like my mom and my aunt, and as well as to my grandfather, and and like I found this stash of writings, basically. And one of the letters that I found to, so I, I think I mentioned previously, I found letters to my mom and my aunt. But one of the things I didn't mention, and I'm going to mention it now, is one of the letters I found was something written to my grandfather from my grandmother, where she discusses her dissatisfaction. I mean, very much like in this movie, with being a stay-at-home mom and just staying home all day, not pursuing her vocational interests, and in the case of my, in the specific case of my grandmother, her artistic interests. And so she was just basically like fucking going insane from being at home all day, raising kids, ironing shirts, like that sort of 1950s, I mean, it, it wasn't a sort of 1950s lifestyle. This was the 1950s, right? So I find these letters and, um, you know, I, I called my grandfather and I, I kind of talked to him about this and I, like, I just asked, like, what sort of went on during that time? And lo and behold, my grandfather, what does he do? He does what Richie does in this movie, sends her to therapy. And, you know, back in the 50s, if you were a woman who went to therapy and you complained about how unhappy your life was, what did they do? Well, they, this was like the day and age where they give you quaaludes and vibrators and told you to shut the fuck up and just, like, enjoy your life, right? Like, you don't have to go to work. Here, here's this thing. Shut up, right? And so, you know, for my grandmother, much like Hunter, I think, it got so bad. Um, I mean, I, maybe this is even, I mean, this is technically sort of worse than what happens to Hunter. But with my grandmother, she had to have, like Shayra was saying, uh, electroconvulsive therapy. She had shock treatments. And uh, that just made things way worse. And so she ended up being diagnosed as a schizophrenic, eventually struggled with keeping up with reality. And... I mean, while I don't think that it's the 1950s gender roles, social mores, sort of, sort of shit that was like demonstrably to blame for everything, uh, with with result to her like descent, um, it certainly didn't help, right? And and so I think if anything, this film sort of prompts the viewer, at least it did in my case, to question like the health of a set of social mores that we may take for for granted. It, it, things that we even have today, like 
I don't know, maybe it's worth asking the question. Maybe it's not a joyous thing for a woman to iron her husband's clothes every day and vacuum the house and raise kids. Like maybe we, like maybe they should have a say in their role as opposed to just being passive and accepting the way it's always been. Maybe they should have more control. I mean, this was one of those movies that just sort of like reminded me of those things. And it made me think about like sort of questioning the mechanism, questioning the machine. Do you know what I mean? I, I think if there's anything normative in this movie, it's 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 questioning just sort of the way things have always been. It's yeah. It's interesting because you're talking about uh, a film that made you question the machine, and literally our last podcast was about questioning ma- yeah. the machine. Parasite. Yeah. The, right. Yeah. We were talking about uh, Parasite, where capitalism is the machine that gets questioned, and Parasite here, it's gender roles and gender norms. And in, in 2020, like it shouldn't be a matter of maybe some questions at this point. I mean, I think we very clearly know that trapping somebody in a situation that doesn't reflect who they are or what they want to be is kind of like a negative thing, right? I mean, like I. I, I don't have the story that you have, Noah, but I mean, I think this is that same pressure and stress is something that I saw in both sets of grandparents that I have. In one case, it resulted in a very early divorce, which I actually think is probably the healthier like outcome, right? I mean, if you just get away from the situation, like that's, you know, it sucks at the time and the kids hated it and everything, but, you know, I mean, that's... Anyway, like on the other side, I think um, we see a person who stayed in that situation their entire life and just sort of put themselves through it and and bore the brunt of that and the weight of that because of uh, religious context. And I think that's, that's um like, I don't know necessarily how much we'd want to dig into that, but I think because of the, the religious upbringing and the, the, the importance of that within that particular family kept her in that situation well beyond what she ever wanted, would have wanted to be in, you know what I mean? So it's like, yes, we definitely see this. I think it's ubiquitous among people from this generation and earlier. Um, and we very obviously see the negative effects of forcing women to, to be in these situations when they don't want to be, at least when they don't want to be. Like, the main, the main issue here is that if we lived in a society where partnership meant, and I, and I consider partnership not even just two people, like, if you want to have more than two partners in your sexual relation or, uh, you know, romantic relationships, I am very open to that. Um, if one of the people is going to be staying at home, it should not be based off of what their genitals are or what they uh, what they go by as far as weird societal norms of the 50s, because that clearly didn't work. Like, if someone is more inclined to want to be around the house and they're more introverted, don't need that, you know, social interaction that, that happens from having a job day to day, which is actually really healthy for a lot of people to have coworkers to talk with all the time and have duties that you need to do daily that's outside of the house. Um, like if you feel comfortable being the person who stays home and takes care of kids or takes care of mundane things, uh, then that's cool. I just don't think it should be attached to your gender. It shouldn't be attached to what kind of genitals you have. The thing that's really interesting about this film, it is set in today, and she's doing these kind of old-fashioned things, but they are very much a real thing that occur in a lot of women I've known today, um, where they get stuck in this mundane, like, oh, you fold my laundry for me, and you do the dishes for me, and you cook my food for me because you're the woman, The reason why this has occurred, uh, a lot of mothers, and this still happens today, a lot of mothers raise their sons 
to not know how to do any of that shit. Uh, there are a lot of men who do not know how to wash dishes, who do not know how to do their laundry, who do not know how to feed themselves. And what ends up happening is you will have those mother-in-law types telling the women, uh, you, I was serving my son, now it's your turn. And I saw that in this film very much so. And it was kind of like, I wanted to be an artist too. And then we were rescued and you are rescued. You would have had it worse if you would have like, you know, gone a different route. So you ha you have it good now. Just know your role and just run with it. And you know, she was she had that conversation with her her daughter in law where she was like, "Are you faking it until you make it?" That that whole conversation, like, don't why are you faking it? Like, you should just be making it. Like, I'm sorry. Why didn't you teach your son how to fucking iron a tie, <laughs> like, or steam a tie, or? Hire someone else to do it with that money. Like, what the fuck is... Teach your kid how to function. Why are why are your kids not self-sufficient when they're grown-ass men with careers? The fuck is wrong with you, mom? You failed. And I think this is where my vitriol went in the, in the movie. I saw one of the main bad guys at that mother-in-law. I was so angry at her through most of it. She was condescending. She was like, oh, you just need to have more iron in your diet and was like trying to be like so invasive in her life and talking about her hobbies as if they're unnecessary because you have this man in your life. That conversation I think is much more complicated and and, and interesting than I I mean you're right to 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 plug into that conversation but what's what's interesting about the beats of that scene is it begins with um she, Catherine was telling herself, look, I, this is the thing I told myself. I told myself to fake it until I make it. And then, uh, and so she's sort of passing that advice, not in a, a particularly mean-spirited way, but simply as, this is how I coped with the pressures of being the wife of a successful man and now I'm going to generously pass these on the this yes, piece of advice on to that now, was my problem with all of the pretentious douchebag rich wealthy characters actually is that they were faking a uh, human behavior that is empathetic and loving at every single moment Every time they were being nice, it was fake as fuck. You could see right through it. And it finally came through um, with, well, first off, the fact that they were trying to lock her up. These people are not nice. I don't care how much they smile. I don't care how much they say that they care. The second the mom was like, I'm going to need to hold on to your engagement ring and your watch. I'm just going to take care of it for you. She's fake. She is fake. She does not care about this person. She cares about stealing the baby from her and locking up this bitch at this point. <laughs> She's like, Hunter, you're going to get locked away. I'm going to steal my grandchild and I'm done with you. I'm even taking your jewelry at this point. But the son was the epitome of knowing that their niceties were fake because when she called him from the hotel room and he was told like, oh, I love you. I just, I need to get away from this situation. He was like, you'll never do better than me. And all of his true colors come to fruition. They are fake. They've learned to be fake and to lie about loving and lie about what is caring. It's it's not real. It's uh, a facade so that everybody thinks that they're really great people. You also see this in the party scene when it comes to the knowledge of Hunter that her husband told everyone he worked with about her pica. 
And they say, one of the women there said a comment and was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And he tries to like clean it up like he wasn't an asshole for this thing. And this is when we finally see Hunter standing up for herself when they go to bed later that night. She's like, can you admit you did something really messed up just now? Like, that was horrible. You told your coworkers about my personal life? Who does that? And he was like, you know, I'm struggling here too. Like, that is not what a, a loving, caring husband does. He doesn't go around telling his wife's deep, dark secrets to his coworkers and then make it seem like it's about him. So I, I guess it, for me, and I, I understand your interpretation of them being nice, but my interpretation was these people are fake nice and they need to be pushed away out of your life immediately. To be clear, I wasn't necessarily defending them. I was trying to look at it from Catherine's perspective and saying, this is what she thinks she's doing. I agree that they are fake, and I agree that this is, like, I, I'm not necessarily defending them as as people, but I'm trying to take a look at the complexities of that scene, which which will I'll do in a little bit more. Sorry, go ahead, Beth. An interesting lens to view this movie through is just sort of understanding that every character is written to try and express control in different ways. If you think about it like that, I think that's one possible way to interpret the film. And so obviously we have our main character. We have um, the man that she confronts toward the end of the movie. But we also have her mother-in-law. We have her mother. We have her husband. Um, we even see how her, like the social group around her husband sort of does that same kind of like song and dance in the party and how they exercise control in certain ways over their situations. Um, and I think, yeah, like whenever you think about the stepmother, that's probably her one way of exercising a little bit of control is by being the 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 godmother figure over this new woman who has been introduced into their little circle of society, right? It's like now she's passing on the system. She's perpetuating the system that she accumulated her or accustomed herself to. And I think that's really kind of like how we see these things pass on. That's a really interesting element of realism there is that, um, you know, the way these things move forward in time is that the victims of them sort of get caught up in that system and then also kind of like bring that on other people, if that makes sense. I, I feel like that's, that's at least in my interpretation, that's kind of like what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, I think that, Ka I think you're both right. I think that Catherine represents, the, the mother-in-law represents sort of the finality of what's at the end of Hunter's Road if she would have stayed with, uh, with Richie, right, with her husband. Given that the height of this mother-in-law's advice is fake it until you make it, I, I think the idea is like to pretend to be happy, to fake it, until you're conformed, like until you're solidified into this structure. Like, it's almost like you're gonna have everything you need. Like, shut the fuck up. You're gonna have everything you need. Just keep up appearances, be passive, do your best to enjoy the ride. And like one day you're gonna be in a place of acceptance. You'll have wealth, you'll have family, you'll have stability. And all you have to do to get there is just like go against yourself. You know, that's. That's how, like sort of how I looked at this scene. And I think Catherine was like honest about it. Like I, I, I think it's I think it's I think you're all right. Like you can be honest about holding really deeply immoral and fucking horrific views. Do you know what I mean? But that's not what I'm interested in. What I'm interested in is, Jim, did you iron your tie for this podcast? That's actually what I'm interested <laughs> in at the moment. <laughs> No, because you don't fucking iron ties. I thought like, so. It's I just, thought so. Yeah. You don't iron ties. That's everybody knows that, right? And if not, let me tell you. I um, this is something ties. that I'm 
I'm learning this for the first time. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. I didn't know that you didn't iron ties. <laughs> You're welcome, Ben. I'm glad I'm here to uh, to tell you this thing that's incredibly important. Okay, moving on. Um, let's talk about... I, I want to go back to the idea that Ben pro- kind of brought up, and it's... it's I, even in the small moments of this film... Um, you can read this film through the lens of control. And I want to talk about the give me a hug guy. Uh, We first see the give me a hug guy uh, as he confronts Hunter in the kitchen. And he says, give me a hug. And she's like, that's, I'm no. And uh, then he says, I'm lonely. And that is his, that's his reason. Like that's his set, that's his pitch, you know. Give me a hug because I'm lonely. And it's a way, I mean, it may seem like that is relatively benign, but underneath that, and just like examining that interaction with any degree of, of, of criticality, it, it seem, it's more pernicious and, and, than it first seems because it's motivating somebody to do something that they may or may not want to do. Um, initially, she says no. She would prefer not to. Um, motivating somebody, somebody to do something that she doesn't want to do based upon your needs and your emotions, based upon your inadequacies, based upon your your feelings of, of loneliness. It's basically playing this this game of of emotional blackmail and 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 like the pity game and um i you know you should give me this thing because i need it that kind of uh that kind of that kind of method of control and emotional blackmail that this particular guy engages in i think is something that you can explode into other relationships within this film. I think this film is a lot about how men control women. Um, specifically, uh, you know, that that's one one example, but obviously the psychiatric facility is, is leveraged versus threats of divorce. Uh, Richie sort of entreating a hunter's return with emotional mi- manipulation. Richie um, emphasizing hunter's financial dependence, on and on and on. But, I mean, what do you guys think about that? Do you think that this is... I think, because I think Ben is, is right that that's the heart of the movie, that that control, that men controlling women and how men control women is is the heart of how to, to sort of unfold this film. Yeah, I, I, I love this because it it's like this, this is a great topic, right? Because the film, I think, focuses like a lot of energy on women as subordinate to the extent that they're relegated to the, the to mere objects, we could say, right? So like we consider Hunter very obviously in this movie as a trophy wife through and through, right? Like she exists as this shiny thing that Richie can show off to his friends and to his family. And I think the can I have a hug dude is like a really weird example of this. It, it, the scene with him, I think he's in a couple scenes actually, seems very odd and out of place in the movie. And he sort of takes you off guard as a viewer. But I think his role in the film is to underscore 
that in the world, like, like how in the, in, 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 like how women are seen in this world, I guess, I guess that, you know, the, this man is treating women as almost a commodity, as almost a product, a tool that will satiate his immediate need. It's like, I'm lonely. I don't want to be lonely. You're this thing that can fix my loneliness. Can I use you? Like, that's how I saw this guy, right? It's the point of this guy in this movie. It's a, almost to a fault, a very heavy-handed way of placing the value of male needs over and above that of the female, right, in the film. Um, now, to play devil's advocate, to be fair, he does ask. He does ask. I, I think it would have been very interesting if he just was like, hey, I'm so-and-so. Come here, give me a hug, bitch. And that would have been it. Although that would have been a very different sort of movie, one that we all hated and would have been very cheap. But... I, you know, he does ask. I'm, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, he does go, hey, can I treat you as an object? I mean, worth saying. So I don't know. I think but that's a, the oh, illusion of consent. Of it's course. Not of the, course. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's, no, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. I'm sarc I'm terrible at sarcasm. That's absolutely <laughs> accurate. No, no, no. A no absolutely right. accurate. I realized I realized what Noah was doing, but I'm like I have no idea how to segue with this. Like, what what am I gonna? You know, like, I think that like if if we think about that specific scene, something really tricky happens there, and there's a bit of nuance that I think layers onto his performance as a character. Um, I agree with your interpretation of that. Yeah, I mean, like it's it's one of those it's one of those microcosm scenes where it's like if you really understand this one scene, then you understand a whole lot more about the rest of the movie. But if you notice, you know, yes, he he pushes his will on her for like physical ends like he's like talking her into like giving in to some kind of like physical demand and then immediately after she does that and she hugs him she kind of like leans into it a little bit and then eventually says thank you so that's that's the weird if we are thinking about this as a microcosm it's like she's been so conditioned to be used to being forced into things that she doesn't want to do that maybe she's experiencing either some kind of stockholm syndrome or thinks that that's that's what she I don't know like wants in, in a way or like deserves right is to be like forced into a position by some like domineering male figure. Yeah, it's it's a weird thing. Can I explain that from the Please. female perspective? Um, women have been trained since the second we are born that we are there to please others. We are to look pleasing. We are to act pleasing. We are to smile. We are to remain quiet. We are not to argue or debate or discuss certain things. Now, obviously, I was raised in a very patriarchal Christian uh, conservative household, so I'm just going off of that. Uh, I know not all households raise their daughters that way. Uh, I was raised to be this like perfect little being, and a huge part of the thing that I had to learn, or I should say unlearn, was I don't have to please everyone in my life to have happiness myself. It is really, really hard to unlearn. And I'll give it to you guys in a, in a weird story. I went out with my best friend, who I'm still best friends with, who I've uh, known her since I was 12 now, so forever. But I went out with her and her family. We went to Taco Bell. And her family is like, what do you want on the menu? And I was like, oh, anything is fine. And they were like, that's weird. Like, what do you want? <laughs> and I was like, oh, anything, anything is fine. Uh, I'll, I'll just have the cheapest thing. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And they were like, are you broken? Like, what the fuck is wrong with this kid? It's broken. Like, what do you want on the menu to order to eat? And I didn't, I, I started to freak out because they were unhappy with me 
not knowing how to order since I have never ordered. I'm not allowed to order. In my household, I was not allowed to order. And eventually they were like, if you could have anything on this menu, don't look at the prices. What would you like to eat? And I'm like, oh, well, the Mexican pizza, but that's the most expensive thing on the menu. That's too much money. They're like, oh my God, we're getting you a Mexican pizza. And so, um, so they gave me a Mexican pizza and I felt guilty through eating it the entire fucking time because I had been conditioned in a particular way. Um, what I see when I see the give me a hug guy, <laughs> Um, I've experienced this situation myself where you are uncomfortable with the situation. You eventually give in to the situation, but in a lot of ways because of your loneliness and because of your discomfort with life around you, you still feel some form of pleasure, but also like, oh, did I do something wrong? And you actually see later on, he's doing the same ploy to another woman and she almost seems to be jealous. Like, or almost be like, oh my God, that's, that's your game? Like, I was used. You used me for a hug. And it's like, um, you may have felt special for that one little moment, then you realize it's this ploy this guy uses because he's just using women in this way. I mean, maybe it's a little less nefarious than, you know, going around having sex with women, but it's still nefarious nonetheless. You know, if you're a female and you're watching this uh, episode, I mean, clearly the point is when you go to Taco Bell, order that fucking double-decker. Just fucking order it. Like, get that enchilada, get that Mexican pizza, don't care what anyone else says. That's the point of this. Order your fucking Mexican pizza. That's all I'm saying. So now that we're on the, we're on the subject of food, uh, why does this movie begin with the killing of a sheep? Yeah, I, I know, know, right? I, I, yeah, yeah, I know. I'm going to leave the pause in there. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was, a, good one. yeah. That, that was a nice long pause there. It was, it was yeah, really I, yeah, it was I a had, lot of air. <laughs> I have to think about this. I mean, I think, ah, oh, man, I'm, I'm spitballing, but I think, the, like, okay, so the idea of a lamb getting its, because it gets its, its neck, uh, its throat slit, right? And then you get to see its skinless skull. Uh, yeah. As it's hanging, yeah. So it's it's a lamb, and a a person grabs it, and then you, it slits its throat, and then you get to see its skinless skull, and then they eat the lamb at the uh, the he's the Richie's the managing director, isn't he awesome? I think it's I think it's relating a I I think it's re, I think there's sort of a vegetarian message associated with this, and I think it's That's relating nice. the uh, you don't think so? You disagree? No, no I, I was going to say, like, I was just thinking through, like, different ways this can be interpreted. I'm like, well, you know, if this is, you know, Bong Joon-ho, like, if this was uh, last week and we were talking <laughs> about capitalism, then, yeah, I mean, let's, you know. Um, but, yeah, like, I definitely see the vegetarianism thing, because if you really think about, like, human methods of control over animals or something like that, right? It's like, right. You, know, you can kind of get there. Like, I, I, see what, I see what you're saying. And then what is being, like, the whole movie is about putting inappropriate things in your mouth. And yet this is juxtaposing what is an appropriate thing to put in your mouth, what is an appropriate thing to ingest versus what is an inappropriate thing to ingest. You know, so I, I wonder whether or not it's, it's kind of extending uh, inappropriate uh, things to ingest to, to meat, to lambs, to, to animals, to they production. They didn't just make the lamb look disgusting, though. One of the interesting aspects of this film was food wasn't appetizing, really. 
uh, or didn't really look edible for me until the end when she was eating french fries with ketchup in the mall, ready to take her pill. Um, but most of the time, they, like, showed her squirting out sauce, and it was, like, and, like, ugly, like, a tannish brown, whatever the fuck sauce. I don't know like what that sauce, sauce was. You're just, like, what are you Okay, I, 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 I wanted to eat that, and I wanted <laughs> the lamb. I like I don't know what 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 call what kind of drugs are you guys on? I wanted that fucking uh. lamb and I wanted that I wanted that shit sauce whatever that was. That looked great. You wanted All the right, shit so sauce. I totally did. I'm I'm serious. I'm dead fucking serious. You're going to make I, me gag, Noah. Yeah, I Jim, I I'm just going to say shit sauce for the rest of the podcast. See if I can make you gag. Yeah, I like for me I I okay. I I get it. I hear that. I see it. I think it's a bit of a stretch. So let me give you my like 10 second reinterpretation of that and let me see how this lands on you i think the lamb getting its neck slit its throat slit and then the next scene we see like that really nice dinner we see the really nice we see the lamb on the plate essentially i think that's like a metaphor for the facade of the dinner plate like to get this really beautiful thing you see on the plate there's really this underbelly this thing that has to be sacrificed control oneself one's thing one's it to get this beautiful trophy wife-esque beautiful plate that's you know that everyone is seeing i think it's 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 basically showing the ugly the under ugly versus what's on the plate i mean that's what this movie is about it's about what it what one is sacrificing to make beautiful to make to to be this thing that everyone else sees so I, I think it's a little broader than that. That that would be my interpretation, but who the fuck knows? How is that? Well, how is that also not a vegetarian-esque message? But okay. I, I mean, but, but like there's nothing else in this movie that even, like like Raw has more vegetarian-esque elements in it. There's, I guess that's the, true. The, the whole context of this movie has, there's nothing else in this movie that would even touch vegetarianism. So to me, it just makes sense that this goes in line with the all chicken and the brown things. sauce was disgusting. I'm sorry. And I don't so know good. what Yummy. whiteness is inside of you oh, that makes I'm, you think that's okay. I'm so hungry. It's not <laughs> like, okay. like oh, brown, God. Sauce, brown sauce has a name, and I think that name is gravy. Like, there's a very common, uh, like, if you've ever had KFC. It was squeezed out of a bottle. It was squeezed out of, it wasn't <laughs> gravy. Out of a bottle. I'm so hungry right now. I think it's time to talk about something far less controversial. Um, so hungry right now. I think it's I think it's time to talk about some far less controversial. Let's talk about abortion. Um, <laughs> how's uh? Hey, hey, do you want to talk about abortion? Because uh, I think abortion is portrayed rather interestingly in this uh, in this film. I mean, we get two mentions of it. First is the psychologist asks the ask hunter whether or not her parents considered aborting her when Hunter reveals that uh, that that she was the uh, the result of a a sexual assault, and uh, then of course Hunter at the end uh, aborts aborts the uh, the child uh, that she has with Richie. Um, how is I I Noah? You've talked about this off off uh off podcast before but now i want you to talk about it on podcast tell me uh what you think this film is saying about abortion 
Yeah, I mean, I th- right. So this, oh God, I got to be so careful here. This is where I think like the real controversial stuff in this movie comes in, not the squirting of the brown stuff. That's not controversial. It's yummy. We all, it's objectively yummy. Um, I, I like. I, I want to be really careful here in distinguishing like my own opinion on abortion from what I think the film is doing with this issue. And and I think they align largely, but I, I just want to start by being careful and distinguishing, like giving my own opinion, my, my own normative moral prescriptions on the issue of abortion with what I think the film is trying to convey. Okay, so with that said, I, 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 I think it's interesting that like when we think of Hunter, the more that Hunter's pregnancy develops, that is, the more there's this foreign thing inside her that grows and grows, the more foreign objects she willfully puts inside of her body and damages it, right? Like, there's almost like a one-to-one connection between the growth of this thing, this entity that's inside of her, with the continuity of the foreign bodies that she just decides to swallow throughout the movie. Like, Hunter's abortion at the end of this movie felt like, and this goes back to the point I wanted to originally get to with Ben, like her abortion at the end of the movie felt like a kind of atonement for her passivity throughout the movie. And it, it, it was like like that ending scene with her abortion felt like hitting a really hard reset button, right? Like it, it was like this defiant way of abruptly taking back control, something that her mother, for example, in this movie could never do. We didn't talk about this much, but like the right wing nut job, right? Like Hunter, Hunter essentially puts a wrench into the patriarchal machine at the end of this movie. And it's a power move, but one that is painful. We see that in the blood that's in the in the toilet after this, right? Like that abortion scene in the bathroom of the mall didn't seem very fun to me. And it, to me, almost seemed like a penance for allowing things to get as far as they did throughout this film. Now, I mean, so I I guess I would say, and I want to be careful the way I describe this, like that scene seemed both like a very vigilant, defiant act of taking back control, and I'm totally on board with that, but it also kind of felt like a blunt depiction of what you're sacrificing, of like almost like what the separation looks like should you let it go too far? Should you let this machine take you all the way to where it did? Yeah, and I think I agree with that. Like pretty much everything of what you what you were talking about here, Noah, about like a, in terms of it being a power move, it is definitely a way to break the system. I definitely agree with that. I was really curious at the beginning of the the conversation whenever you were interpreting this as an atonement, and so I'm glad we got to take a look at that a little bit. Um, I think I see it a little bit differently in that regard, and that it seems a little bit more. Um, almost like anti-natalist to me in a sense. So it's like, you know, yes, that question was raised, you know, should the mother have uh, aborted Hunter? And that was, that was a really kind of like interesting, brutal question, uh, definitely a brutal question to ask. Um, but I think the decision that Hunter made was that she pr- she probably saw this pregnancy that she was in as being forced or, or compelled in, in a similar way, I think. Like, I think that's the interpretation here. I mean, whenever you're forcing this woman into this situation, like, she doesn't really want to be there, You, it's time to have a kid now, like, I'm going to, like, have my child, and you're just going to sort of, like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like maybe she felt like that the child that she would have been having from that situation she would have felt about that child in in some way 
that was similar to the way that her mother felt about her, like kind of like making that child feel unwanted. And I think there's a point in which you need to consider, you know, if you can, of course, break away from these more traditional sort of frameworks um, for child rearing and about abortion, that no, I mean, I think the the answer that leads to the least suffering overall is simply to just not have the child. And I think that's that was probably the decision that was made is that she was making a decision to cut off that that chain of like that that cycle of suffering. Um, so that she wouldn't pass on that same burden that was passed to her is kind of like the way that I think I interpreted it. God, that's so interesting. Yeah, because like there's a sense in which Hunter breaks the system. So, so when we think of Hunter's, let's do this. We think of Hunter's dad. He's bound by a rapist compulsion to rape and as a result is 50% of what creates Hunter. Okay. Hunter's mom is this right-wing nut job, as she says, it's not my interpretation, it's Hunter's interpretation. Right-wing nut job that, that, also decides, hey, I even though I've been raped, I don't believe in abortion. I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the flow, as it were. And so these two people act sort of compulsively, one religiously, one biologically, and this introduces Hunter into the world. And then Hunter now is bound by a set of compulsions, right? This goes back to Jim's original point. And and now she decides, fuck this, I'm gonna break the system. And there is kind of an almost like an almost antinatalist self-realization component to this that's I, I didn't consider so i that's a point well taken that's very interesting a huge aspect of this is her trying to see if she wants to keep this child she goes to see her dad do i really want this aspect of myself to also exist in a child let me go meet them is, am i messed up because of you uh will i pass that on to my child but then she even tries calling her mother and her mother's like, oh, your sister's here with her child. Because guess what? When you have the children that aren't the other, they are prioritized in every aspect. Even their children are prioritized. My mother actually posted on Facebook about how I am teaching my daughter to hate while my sister is teaching her daughter to love because she fell in line with the particular conservative Christian aspect of what my parents think is is correct and right. So I've always been othered and now my child is othered. She tried to reach out to her mother. My child's going to be othered. I'm still othered. That was what she got from that phone call. And she's like, oh, fuck. No, no, no. Then she tries to go meet her dad. And she's like, you know, maybe he did learn from going through the horrible situation he went through in jail and maybe finally understood what he did wrong, but also maybe this is also something that could be passed on to my children. And she was like, no, I'm done. And I can tell you when I watched the scene where she finally has her abortion, she washes her hands and leaves and the camera stays in the bathroom. And you see for four minutes, women just washing their hands, going in and out of the stalls, washing their hands like a normal bathroom. That is, just as empowering as Midsummer was for me. When when you see that smile on her face and she's finally free from this relationship that was not healthy for her, that was toxic for her, I felt the same exact, it was a freedom from a toxic relationship and a toxic background that she does not have to be a part of. Does that mean that her future is gonna be the greatest? Maybe not, might still be bleak. I mean, we get that from it too, but she's escaped this toxic situation. And that's an achievement. That is something to be valued. Um, so I, I get 
every aspect of how Hunter might have felt. She's trying to reconnect with her parents to see if this is, does she want to make the same mistake? Does she want to have a child that she looks at and thinks, you look exactly like this jerk who is toxic towards me? Or to let them use that as a form to control her forever. You know, because that's really what it boils down to. That baby was a form of them using her as a puppet. They'll be able to lock her away. They'll be able to control her life because they want access to that child. Because it's the future CEO of their company, right? Um, so... I think she did the right thing, and I think it was very empowering. It was one of the most empowering things I've ever seen in a film. You brought up the scene between Irwin and Hunter, and I actually find that to be one of the more controversial scenes in the film because there is a juxtaposition of his compulsion to rape and her compulsion as it relates to Pika. And that juxtaposition seems weird to me like that's a those are massive differences in in terms of i mean and let's go through the scene why do you do it i can't explain that that's i was delusional i mean there's no way to explain that i, I was <laughs> it made me feel special secret makes you strong, you know? Everybody thought I was this regular guy, you know? But I was important inside. I was fucking powerful. I was God. <laughs> and, um... And then I went to jail, and... I got shit-bagged in jail. Yeah, they beat me so bad I had to wear a colostomy bag. And then I realized what I was. I was not God. I was shit. To bring this all full circle, when I talk to people about quitting smoking, people say, um, it's slavery, Jim. The cigarette has power over you. You make you it makes you feel as though you have power over it, but no, the cigarette has power over you. Likewise, this is a, you know, Irwin makes a, a determination that actually um, it's not the compulsion that makes him feel powerful. There isn't any inherent power in satisfying the compulsion. And that's what he seems to convince Hunter of, that there isn't an inherent power or isn't an inherent control in being able to satisfy that compulsion. And I, I ooh, that's a... It's a controversial kind of uh, juxtaposition there, and uh, I don't, you don't know, I don't know. How do you read this? The nuance here, I think, is really kind of like in the baseline. So Hunter is basically just forced in this situation where she has no control, and I think the struggle in the movie is for her to get up to a normal level of control over her life, like her own life, um, and so she does have this compulsion to try and act out in crazy ways, like Pika, you know, just specifically when I say crazy that, that's probably harsh language for this but like she's uh, experiencing pika because she needs to be able to express control in, in some kind of way yes it's it's kind of like a, a sort of like a, a disorderly delusional thing that's not going to give her more control really but i think the difference is that you know what uh what erwin 
did is more like he probably started from a normal level of control and then got addicted to the feeling of even being even more powerful than that, being able to take control away from someone else. So it's like where he's starting at a baseline and trying to take more control, she's starting like way down here and just trying to get a just level of normal control over her own life, right? So like that's kind of like where I really draw the distinction here and that, you know, of course they're not the same. Um, he didn't really need to say it, and I think, of course, the, the scene sort of suggests that she knows this, but the reason that they're not the same is that he is being a monster and taking control away, whereas she's the other side of that. She had power taken away from her, and she's just trying to get it back, right? So it's, you know what I mean? It's like they're both kind of like reaching out um, and expressing that need for control in different sort of unhealthy ways, but obviously he is the real monster because he's the one victimizing, whereas she is the victim. Man, okay. I didn't initially connect the compulsion aspect between Hunter's father, Erwin, and her. Um, like, I I mean, obviously they both have a, a, a cathartic compulsions to a certain extent, but I took her confrontation with her father to be more about, like, her place in the world, her need for context, right? So let me, let me kind of unpack that. So, like, the most pivotal part of that scene with Hunter and her father is when, er, to me, is when Irvin Irwin initially like kind of invades her space and acts like he's in control only to have Hunter like snap back really quickly. So. You gonna ruin my life? Or what? I haven't decided yet. I guess I should, right? Touch me! Keep your voice down. I will do whatever the fuck I want. I make the rules here. I'm in charge, okay? Say it. Say it. <laughs> okay, you're in charge. And I, and I think that's that is the key to everything. That is the key to that entire scene. The scene to me is about confronting past trauma as a means of taking back control over one's life. So, com I mean, compulsion or no compulsion, right? So like, it seems to run deeper than that to me. Hunter suffers from a very common ailment in that she's looking for grounding, for context, right? Like given a past in which she sort of questions her belonging in the world, right? Um, she essentially had, I said this previously, she has two parents, uh, as the film would want us to believe, that have both made mistakes in bringing about Hunter. One who's engaged in impulsive behavior as a rapist, and the other who failed to have an abortion because of her crazy right-wing beliefs. So you have these two parents, both were bound by... I mean, in essence, limitations of their own, I don't say of their own choosing, but like limitations that ended up creating this person, Hunter, who herself is now struggling in being bound, right? So, so it's it, like to Hunter, this is her context, being bound. And I think in, in seeing her father and in seeing his contrition and in hearing him say, look, you're not like me right? It allows Hunter to finally be able to create her own context, to no longer be bound to the limitations of her husband, her wealthy in-laws, and to sort of push past the passivity of being bound by, you know, this patriarchal system, I'm just going to say it, that sort of offers a modicum of comfort 
in exchange for her personhood. So, I mean, like I saw this exchange with Hunter and her father as slightly more expansive than maybe just like the the very distinct issue of compulsion. And I saw it as a bit of more of a broader question of like, who the fuck am I in this world? That's how I saw it. From a lot of what we've studied about rape, there are still some people that believe that rape is about um, being sexually attracted to someone or trying to get off. It is not. It's always been about power. It's always about having control over someone. That is what rape is, period. And this entire film is about control and about power. And so I felt like that was almost imperative to happen near the end um, to discuss the idea of compulsion and the idea of power and the idea of control and how all of those things can interweave into the context of the film. Uh, It's almost hitting it over the head kind of hard, but it's absolutely necessary considering all of the backstories that we already knew about all the characters. Um, If she wouldn't have met up with her dad, I'd be like, why the hell did we even bring this shit up? You know what I mean? Um, But the idea that he was trying to act like he was God, that wasn't that he is necessarily God. He's talking of having power over somebody. And that is exactly what it always is. Um, So she is then realizing that she herself is dealing with people trying to have power over her all of her life. This is why she brings up even her conservative, you know, wackadoo mom. She's also like that. And so her both of her parents have been very authoritarian and very uh, power driven. And a lot of that has to do with the idea that they don't know how to empathize with others. And so one of the things I've taken away from both Parasite and this film, one of the things we all must do as a society is stop trying to overpower others. Stop trying to have, uh, you know, this control over everybody and try to empathize and love others. And I know it sounds super hippie, crunchy, stupid, but like it's really actually bad for our society. A lot of the issues that are going on today have to do with us not empathizing with others, not caring about others and constantly worried about our own form of power and control over others. Uh, so I'll run through run through some notes about the uh, the filmmaking, um, and uh, feel free to jump in if anything sort of jumped out to you. But um, there were a lot of primary colors in this film; like it was always vibrant primary colors. Maybe they were going for a '50s aesthetic. I mean, it's just something I noticed, and I didn't know exactly how to read it. But it it was sort of about. Uh, uh, it's connected to the unique milieu of the movie. Um, then you've got a ton of singles. Like everything's in singles. Um, and of course, we talked about that in Parasite, where it's sort of enhancing this sort of social isolation. Um, you know, you shoot everybody in singles, and it's it's as though you're you're continuing uh, social isolation. I wanted to give a shout out to Dennis O'Hare, who gives the best short performance in a horror film since Kevin Spacey in Seven. Oh my God, that's I mean, the scene with the rapist awful father is. Ugh. Uh, weird and bad and scary and whatever but 
Dennis O'Hare is fantastic in that scene. And uh, Haley Bennett is fantastic as well. I especially love the, okay, I have to go, after Richie calls her all kinds of bad names and whatnot. Like, I thought that was fantastic. Um, but uh, anyway, do you, anyone else want to call out an aspect of this film? Um, aspect of the filmmaking before we, uh, before we rate and review? Um, so my take on the art direction uh, was that if you look at all of the um, modern but 1950s style uh, furniture, you'll note that she keeps on adding colors to her own element. It is almost like her pica, but also like she's trying to add color and elements of things that aren't beige, gray, boring, blah, blah, blah. And he almost is upset about it every time she's introducing a color palette uh it's like that's that's wrong you and even she has to ask permission to grow flowers right. uh near her pool um and and starts trying to talk to him about flowers which of course he ignores and and continues to look at his phone while he's at the table after she said a beautiful you know setting of food and it and looks gorgeous and is trying to have a conversation with him about the flowers she would like to grow he's not even listening to her um but, like, she's trying to add color. She's trying to add life to this horrible place. You actually see um, the red leather sofa. It At first, it's presented in cellophane, like she had just purchased it. It That red sofa was not matched with any of the other elements of that room. She's trying to have control in some way by adding color. That's why she's also putting the cellophane up on the windows uh, for the boring bland ass baby room <laughs> but it's she's trying to add color to his life and he's not about that he wants to stay in the boring mundane brown beige gray horrible patriarchal lifestyle and he does not like change he does not like anything new he does not like anything that pops and actually one of the interesting things about the mother-in-law's uh, room where she when she's sitting in the room talking with her mother-in-law it's still a boring, mundane room, but there's a little pop of yellow. And I feel like that was that conversation they were having about, like, you need to just fake it till you make it. She added color, but it blends in with the beigey grays. It's not a uh, pop the way that uh, Hunter was trying to put into her, into her house. And you can even tell from the conversation she's having with her husband about adding powder, powder blue curtains in the theater. He was just like, why would you do that? That, what? color like okay <laughs> you know and so that was what I took from what the art director was doing I don't know if you guys saw the same thing but yeah I mean it's, it's like uh, it's like the giver meets feminism I don't know like color how dare you yeah I, I mean I, yeah I, 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 I see that completely and I think like for me I one of the connections I want to make was so we, so we did Parasite two, two weeks ago and one of the obvious connections between these two films that we haven't discussed is like sort of the large spaces, single shot, Jim mentioned this, but like the open windows to aspects of the home. It's almost like when you've hit an idealized sense of wealth, you lose a kind of authenticity and things become sort of diffused. It's like if you if you have wealth, the window should look like this, big and broad. And it's, it's almost like a, a sense of... Um, I don't want to say self-worth, but like self-authentication and, and differentiation is lost with wealth. 
I, I saw that in this in in the architecture of our architecture of the house in this movie. It was like it was very similar to the fucking house in Parasite. Large, spacious, open windows. Just very odd to me. I thought I thought that was strange. Um, but I this goes to one of the criticisms I have with this movie. I love that this was my pick, right? Like I love this movie. You but know, I'll roll this into your final thoughts. I, let's do it. So okay, with we'll re- change the order in my show notes then. So so let's let's hop into final thoughts, right? So my final thought with this movie is that it, you know, so I I love this movie. It was my pick. I I there are so many complexities in this movie with regard to social mores, western uh, marital mores, and, and I, there's so much going on in this movie. It's a complex horror film, right? Um, one of the criticisms I have with this movie, in comparison to the film we did two weeks ago, Parasite, is that this movie just places a fucking giant heavy emphasis on the trope of evil, rich, myopic white people. One of the things I loved about Parasite was the complexity of the antagonist. The, the I say complexity, I mean, I really jammed into the gullet of them last the, the last couple of weeks in Parasite. I, I don't want to say complexity, but the simplicity, I think I, I argued in Parasite. But in this movie, really, it's a simplicity. Every, I mean, everyone other than Hunter in this film is just a terrible person, a very myopic, evil, wealthy white person who has no empathetic value or sense of the world at all. And I just, uh, I mean, I get it. Those people exist. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a white Dude, I, I but it just seemed to me like it was like you can navigate the complexities of these issues in a horror film in a way that are more complex, i.e. parasite, than than swallow. Massive fucking criticism I have for this movie. I picked this movie. I love this movie. I think it has very timely, very important um, issues to consider for a horror film. But I also think it's very flawed. It's a very flawed film in in. Maybe let's say how it's written. Um, the way it's filmed is gorgeous, 1950s style. The way we're, we're we're talking about the colorations and how it sort of mimics the metaphors of the film, fantastic. Uh, the homemaker gaze it makes you feel very uncomfortable throughout the course of the film, and then kind of gives you a, a feminine approach to like why you're uncomfortable, like what sort of the problem was. I love that about the movie. I love that the idea that this is a movie in which uh, a woman is rendered powerless by what, I don't know, everyone would consider an idealized marriage. And then we're like, what the fuck? Like, why would we feel this way? And then you get a very feminist answer to combat the problem. I, I dig all that, right? I, I just, I wish it would have been a little more complex with the antagonists in the film. I wish it would have reached a little further uh, than what it did. We talked in Parasite about, is this an eat the rich film? Well, like this movie has elements of that, like almost obviously like eat the rich, sort of like, uh, you know, the, the, the status quo wealth and like they're all bad. And it's like, well, I, that's, you know, there are contexts in which that is true, but let's make a film that's more complex than that. It doesn't just obviously give us some of these tropes obviously give us some of these answers let me as a viewer navigate a little bit more complexity in these issues i wish i would have had that a little more in swallow so i i pick this movie i love this movie um i would you know in saying i love this movie i'd give it a four out of five 
I consider this one of the one of the best one of the best horror movies of last year. I, I think I would give it to Midsommar and I would give it to Parasite is a little higher than these just for some of the sort of high-minded aspects of this. But I love, I, I, I gotta give it just high praise for the fact that it is going to, tr- this movie and our talking about it is going to give us more dislikes than the thing, than our, than our conversation about Alien. I, I just, I love the fact that this is an MRA's nightmare. I love it. So um, I give this a four out of five. Uh, complex movie. Dug the dug the themes. Dug the metaphors. Flawed movie, but enjoyed it nonetheless. So four out of five. Okay. So um, I was afraid of this movie. <laughs> um, this is this is a movie that I knew that I would have a visceral reaction to. See above about vomiting. Um, and, uh, I was, I almost thought that this was just, like, I was gonna, like, one-star the shit out of this movie just to, like, spite Noah and, uh, be like, stop it with your troll pick, you son of a bitch. Like, that was my, that was my goal going into it. And, uh, but no, this, but, uh, the film is well-made. It is presenting a worldview with which I happen to agree that uh, that that a feminist uh, a feminist point of view with which I happen to agree that um, centers on male control and how um, it, like this isn't just saying look women deserve rights women deserve control over their lives it's not just saying that it's trying to deconstruct how when this movie is good it's trying to deconstruct how men uh keep women down like when it's good this film is is paying attention to the mechanisms of patriarchy the problem is and noah you you got onto this uh perfectly is that um its answers are relatively cliche that it's through economic control, through a um, uh, uh, reproductive control, and through uh, vocational control. Um, that is how patriarchy works, according to this film. Now, there's some nuances and there are some subtle things. I actually think the "give me a hug" guy is one of the most profound uh, observations that this film makes. Um, but the fact that that's the most profound, this this sort of two-line character, two-scene character, is the most profound. Uh, 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 observation that this film makes is sort of a testament to some of the film's weaknesses um it is it is well shot and it is well acted dennis o'hara and and Haley bennett um especially are are fantastic um and and the director um as well uh and and his cinematographers carlo mirabella davis once again uh give him a name drop uh, they're all doing this is this is good and i this is good work and i it's it's good enough for me to want to see their next movie um as for this film i think it's it's solid um and and i'm trying to take out my own sort of visceral reactions from my review and uh and give it the that should add to it I, i'm just gonna re- that should add to it we talked about this before right. when we were offline god 
God almighty, I would kill to have visceral vomit-esque reactions to a horror film. Please, before you score this, that is a plus, not a minus. If you vomited, I would give it like at least 0. <laughs> 0. 0.025 of a po- I just want to throw that in there. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I just um, want to say. I had 3.5, so hopefully that's that's only like 0. 0.5 below where you are. And and I'm I'm sort of struggling between 3 and 3.5, but I think uh I think it's a recommend. It's worth it's worth your eyeballs. Um, but it's uh, there are some flaws associated with it as well. Uh, ben, what about you? No, I, I actually think I don't necessarily see the same weaknesses in this film, but I guess I think the, the nuanced interplay of control and power that happens in this movie um, is, is probably enough for me. Um, maybe that's just me and, and what I would look for in a film like this. You know, yeah, it's it's like it, it's it's a really white movie. You know, I totally get it. like I mean, it's, it's kind of like myopic in its perspective, perhaps. Um, and you know, I, I, as being a huge fan of Parasite and just in general, I, I do think that's the better film. Like if you were to just directly compare them, I don't think that's really a question. Like I would definitely agree with that. But what I really just, I, I find absolutely fascinating about this is that I think it really does kind of a good job in implicating how both men and women are kind of like sucked up into this, this system. And, you know, if we do talk about patriarchy, like I really want to emphasize there that we're talking about like a a system of control as opposed to any one individual. And I think really kind of like one of the, the sort of hidden tucked away takeaways in this movie is that it's probably this, this patriarchy, this system that causes men to be overly addicted to power um, and so I think that's that's how you would probably produce someone like an Irwin, is that you give them a little taste and you give them a little taste, and then just like addiction, some people just get really, really super into that feeling of being able to exert their dominance over someone else, and then suddenly you've got like a fucking rapist, um, because they just happen to be an individual who is too susceptible to a societal problem that, and by its very nature, generates monsters, right? So... Um, I don't think that's necessarily right out there in the open because the main character is Hunter, of course, and we're <clears throat> supposed to be focusing on her struggle and her victory and her life. Um, but I definitely think it is a movie more about kind of like that interplay as opposed to just being about like one individual person's plot line per se. Um, yeah, I mean, like all, all the stuff that we talked about, about like how the film was shot, um, <clears throat> I was reaching out to talk to you guys about this because I was so excited about it, <clears throat> at least in one particular scene before we had the podcast. And and that was in that scene specifically about like whenever they find out that Hunter is pregnant. And yes, I mean, like the colors and the self-isolation, the singles are really interesting. But in that scene in particular, what I thought was really well done was the fact that uh, her husband, uh, Con- uh, Con- Richie, yeah, Richie, um, is seen as a shadow on the wall while you can hear his voice and she's just staring forward as if to suggest that yes he's there but he's not really there like and it, it's just such a perfect way to show how alone that she feels because he is basically just a shadow on the wall uh, not really connected there they're not having a moment together he's just sort of like doing his thing and she just happens to be there and instead of seeing like what you would interpret as the main driver of the scene you're just sort of like watching her reaction to this thing that's happening in her presence you know i mean it's it's incredible it's absolutely a perfect way to show not only like her passive nature but her relationship to the other people uh, almost in sort of like a dreamlike state it's dreamlike state that are there around her um Anyway, yeah, so uh, just like fantastic overall, really well written, I think. Uh, really interesting nuanced interplay to dig into. Very well shot. Uh, the acting was good. Um, I think overall, though, like again, because I, I think I would place this a little bit lower than Parasite, of course, but um, even though I see it in a more positive light than perhaps Noah and Jim do, like I think I'm going to give it a 3.5. 
Um, I think that's I think that's a pretty fair rating. Like I do think it's really really good. It could potentially be a four, um, but yeah, I, I think it's something that I, I would definitely recommend to anyone who is just sort of <clears throat> at least in the in a little bit aware of these kinds of social issues. Like obviously, I, I think it was correctly pegged as an MRA um, nightmare, um, right? Like obviously, anyone uh, who is in the least bit sympathetic to those views is probably gonna not dig this very much. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, you know, yeah, fuck you guys, I guess. Um, anyway. Yeah, that's that's pretty much my perspective on the film. Yeah. Um, I went into this thinking uh, it was going to be boring. Um, it wasn't boring at fucking all. Please go watch it. It's awesome. Uh, I do trust your your opinions, Noah, but it it just seemed like oh, bored housewife eating a marble. The fuck is this shit? Uh, so I I kind of went into it with lower expectations uh and i was I very you. pleasantly surprised i was I like you. wait I whoa okay i i may have misinterpreted how awesome this could be <laughs> um <laughs> but uh also when you guys talk about um the rich white people characters uh being a little bit tropey I'm sorry, but rich white people are kind of tropey. I've been around them. I, my, my spouse ran for office. I hung out with all the rich politician white people and had dinners with them. They act like that. It's really fakey facade bullshit. Um, and I mean, I get it. You guys are trying to do business. You're trying to network. You're trying to make family stuff. And, and you end up becoming this fakey person. But this is actually what in real life happens to people when they're trying to be successful in life, and then they have to put forth a facade, which is why I think both Parasite and Swallow have the window, windowy-ass mansion houses. It's not just that you get to look out at others. It's that others can look in at you. And you'll notice that a lot of these richy white types will have so many amazing photos online of their amazing, wonderful lives. And then you talk to them in person, and then they're like, yeah, sometimes he abuses me, and sometimes this horrible thing happens. And you're like, why Why did you just post yesterday that he's the greatest father ever? Like, I'm really confused as to why you're putting on this facade. And this is something I know a lot of people who do. It, it, it put forth a lot of things that I had never really thought about being put together when it talks, to, it talks about power and control and about... What a lot of people sacrifice to have power, to have control, um, but also what people sacrifice because they don't want that power and control because they know it's fucking tainted power and control. There was a lot of sacrificing from a lot of people in how they want to live their life, um, and it's it's interesting to discuss all those concepts. I think it's an interesting uh, film that I'll probably go back to and, and see new things. I definitely think I'll rewatch this. I definitely think I'll have new thoughts on it next time I watch it. Um, I give it a four out of five. It's it's a good it's a good solid film. Uh, we have next. Actually, we're going to take uh, two weeks off. It's two weeks before our next podcast. Uh, we will be returning on uh, August. Oh, my God. God, look at all the time we have off. August 16th for The Platform. This was a film that was on Netflix. It sort of blew up a little bit during the uh, the summer months of the... Well, the the late spring, shall we say. It was, uh, it was when... Uh, uh, COVID hit. I, I remember editing an article about how uh, 
how the platform was the perfect coronavirus movie. So we'll see whether or not pr- the platform is indeed a a perfect uh, coronavirus movie in a couple weeks. We'll see you then. Um, hey, if you enjoyed what you saw today or what you listened to, be sure to like, share, subscribe, do all of the YouTube things, turn on the notifications, hit the bell, do all of the things that you know that we need you to do so that we go to the top of the algorithm and blah, 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 and um, all of that stuff. So uh, until next week, until actually, not next week what am i talking about next week until august 16th we will see you then have a fantastic everything um and uh we'll see you then